the story surrounding Jesus' birth in both Matthew's and Luke's Gospels pose a challenge for modern readers. Uh, Ancient prophecies, angelic visions, inspired dreams, astrologers, pregnant virgins, it's really the stuff of supermarket tabloids, isn't it? There's no shortage of scholars and bloggers out there who will cheer on the, the spiritual meaning of these stories even as they deny their historicity. Did these events actually happen, or were they made up? You know, often people reject these accounts because they're already committed to a a naturalistic worldview. The view that the universe is a closed system, and that nothing exists outside of that system. There is no super nature. But of course, naturalism cannot be proven scientifically. It is a matter of faith. Think with me for a moment, if God exists outside of nature, and if God is personal, doesn't it make sense that he would remain interested in and involved with his creation? I'm not particularly artistic, I don't draw or paint or or quilt or anything like that, but I love to garden, and that's how I create. And when I garden, I don't create from scratch, I, I create through rearrangement. I tend, I cultivate my garden. I I start out by creating the the right conditions for each plant to thrive, and then I I plant them, and they pretty much take it from there. I don't have much to do with with their growth. But sometimes a section of the garden gets too crowded, or a plant needs to be divided or, or pruned or deadheaded. And sometimes two plants don't look good together or seedlings need to be relocated somewhere else. So I intervene. Now, could my garden survive without all of my meddling? Probably. But I'm invested. I have a vision for what it can be. It serves a purpose. It would make zero sense for me to create a bed, buy plants, put them in the ground, and then turn my back on it and ignore it. Now, I don't garden to impress my neighbors or to increase my property value. I garden because I love to create something that is dynamic and beautiful. And I have a relationship with my garden. And maybe you feel the same way about something that you've created. Maybe a a, a collection or, or a car or even your house. Well, God is enormously invested in his creation. So much so that he, although he trusts us, He doesn't leave us to our own devices. And from time to time, he steps in. He intervenes. Not in a way that undermines our freedom, but in ways that enhance our freedom. The Advent and Christmas stories in the Bible are reminders that God is enormously invested in his creation. He is fully committed to making sure that it flourishes long term. And no matter how bad things get, God doesn't give up on his creation. Of course, you don't have to look uh, very far into these stories to realize that God's occasional interventions create uh, some collateral effects. Joseph's life is humming along predictably. He's come of age. He's learning a trade. He's become engaged to a young woman. Soon they'll get married. Eventually, God willing, they'll have children. He'll progress in his career as a carpenter and one day probably have apprentices of his own. 
With any luck, he'll be able to attend his children's weddings and be there for the birth of his grandchildren. And that's about all that a peasant could hope for in Roman-occupied Israel. But it came with a certain amount of stability, predictability, and simple joys. Well, Mary's pregnancy was a threat to just about everything Joseph imagined his life would be. Things, uh, well, (laughs) it's never good when your best case scenario involves getting a divorce. Sometimes our lives don't turn out the way we hope. We make unwise choices that end up limiting our options. Things beyond our control uh, sidetrack us or demand our attention. A career path is closed off to us. A relationship ends. A loved one needs our attention and care. We get sick. You probably have your own stories of detours and disappointments that have forced you to postpone or abandon some dream of yours. And when this happens, we can do one of three things. We can give up, we can lash out, or we can press in. We can throw in the towel and uh, accept defeat. We can get angry at other people or get angry at God for standing in the way of our dreams and plans. Or we can stay in the game and see what God is up to. Joseph presses in. When he finds out that Mary's pregnant, knowing that he's not the father, Joseph has three options. He can go ahead with the marriage. He can publicly divorce Mary. Or he can privately divorce her. The first option is the hardest because it means bringing shame on himself and on his family. Plus, he'll always wonder if he's first in Mary's heart and if he can trust her. The second option is the easiest. It would destroy Mary, of course, but it would make it clear to everyone in the community that Joseph had the moral high ground. She would be ruined, but he would have another chance to carve out something that would approach normal. But Joseph picks option three. Based on what he knows, this is the best way he knows to honor God and to preserve Mary's dignity. So of the three options, number one is the hardest. Number two is the easiest. Joseph picks number three. And then God picks number one. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Sometimes the journey of following Jesus is itself a cause of fear. Fear and pain begin flowing into Joseph's life after God intervenes. We may need to recalibrate our expectations of what happens when we decide to follow Jesus. This theme is consistent throughout the Gospels. When Jesus tells Peter to cast his nets one more time and he catches so many fish that his nets begin to burst, Peter is afraid. When Jesus heals a man who is being spiritually oppressed, the whole town just freaks out and asks Jesus to leave. When the disciples are caught in a raging storm and Jesus tells the wind and the waves to be quiet, The twelve disciples become terrified. 
When Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the grave, the Pharisees are stricken with fear. In each case, Jesus is a force for good, a force for shalom and abundance. He is only a threat to economic mediocrity, spiritual oppression, physical danger, and death. So why is everyone around him so afraid? What is so threatening about a windfall or a healing or a rescue or a resurrection? Here's what I think. I think that we are really, really invested in the status quo, especially if we're privileged. We are so invested in worldly security, comfort, and predictability that when those things are threatened, we can't handle it. Now, God, on the other hand, doesn't care about any of those things. God wants to make all things new, including our hearts that are bent inward. And God wants to help us to learn how to trust him again. God wants to help us to get out of ourselves so that we can put him and other people first. God wants to break strongholds and and liberate the oppressed and set the world to rights. Jerry Reinsdorf is the owner of the Chicago White Sox and the Chicago Bulls. He's a powerful man. He says the American dream is to reach a point in your life when you don't have to do anything you don't want to do and you can do everything you do want to do. That sounds about right, doesn't it? But that's not God's dream. God's dream is for you to reach a point in your life where you will trust and obey him, enjoy and delight in and serve him, no matter what your circumstances are. Think of some of the people throughout history who caught God's vision for a better world and whose hearts began to beat with God's heart for the poor and the marginalized. When they encountered resistance, when they began to feel the cost of going there, they didn't quit. They didn't get angry. They pressed in. Think of Mother Teresa, who came alongside of the sick and the dying in poverty-stricken Calcutta. Think of William Wilberforce, who fought to end the British slave trade and insisted that Africans were created in God's image too. Dorothy Day, who began a movement to meet the needs of the poor and to fight for justice on their behalf. Martin Luther King Jr., who gave us a vision of unity through diversity that was rooted in the gospel. Their lives were filled with conflict and suffering, and yet their lives were rich and fruitful, and they changed history. As Brennan Manning says, anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded including Jesus. These people loved God and they loved others more than they loved themselves. And they valued justice and mercy more than their own comfort and advancement. And they suffered not because God was picking on them, but because sometimes love means getting close to pain. And sometimes love means disadvantaging yourself so that you can advantage someone else. For Joseph to love God, for Joseph to love Mary, 
for Joseph to love Jesus. That meant letting God ruin his wedding and his reputation. It meant being a refugee for two years. It meant losing social capital and leadership opportunities. It meant letting Jesus displace Joseph from the center of his own story. Sometimes the journey of following Jesus is itself a cause of fear and loss. Henry Nouwen says discipleship means allowing God to take us places we would prefer not to go. Have you ever noticed that everyone who gets caught up in the Christmas story is sent outside their comfort zone? Have you ever noticed this? Mary is a pregnant virgin. Joseph is married to one. I'm not sure which is worse. The shepherds who are outcasts are sent into town as messengers. And the magi, who are already hundreds of miles from home, get caught up in a high-stakes game of espionage and state-sponsored murder. And yet each of them, when they leave their comfort zone, find salvation. Discipleship means allowing God to take us places we would prefer not to go. The sooner we learn this, the sooner we stop basing all of our decisions on what's easy and what's comfortable, the sooner we'll start to live lives that matter. Find someone whose faith you admire and ask them, how did you grow? How did your faith become so real and vital? I guarantee you they will tell you stories about things that God allowed to enter their lives that they never would have signed up for. And that has certainly been true of me. My faith has grown the most when I was uncomfortable, when I felt helpless and inadequate and in over my head, when I had to come face to face with my own brokenness, when following Jesus cost me something. That's when I grew. Discipleship means allowing God to take us places we would prefer not to go. Where is God trying to take you? Is he inviting you to get close to someone in pain? To spend time with people outside of your tribe? To share your faith and risk being rejected? To stick your neck out for someone who lacks privilege and power of their own? Does God want you to live below your means so that you can be a blessing to others? To invest in a relationship with someone who's difficult to be around? Where is God trying to take you? Do you think Joseph would have signed up for this if God hadn't have, inter- hadn't have, uh, have intervened? Of course not. I mean, Joseph didn't have sex for months after he got married. <laughs> Let's start with that. <laughs> And forget, and forget a honeymoon, he had to take his family and flee to another country for their lives. But Joseph got to see salvation come out of Mary's womb. Got to see salvation learn how to walk and talk and swing a hammer. And in the midst of the discomfort and pain, God was up to something. He was saving the world. And it was an act of total grace. Salvation costs you nothing. It is a gift. It's free. 
following Jesus might cost you everything. God goes to Mary and says, I'm going to save you. But first, I need to ruin your life. (laughs) And she says, yes. And then God goes to Joseph and says, I'm going to save you too. But first, I need to ruin your life. And he says, yes. I don't think they regretted their decisions. Do you? Grace is the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, to be able to experience God's acceptance and forgiveness, knowing he knows everything about you, everything you've tried so hard to keep hidden from everyone else. He sees it all. He accepts you. He forgives you. To be, to be able to be adopted and loved without having to earn it, without having to work for it or make yourself worthy, that is an incredible, incredible gift. But since God withholds nothing from you, including his son, there is nothing that God can't ask of you. God has the audacity and the right to say to Joseph, look, I know Mary's pregnant and I know you're not the father, but I need you to marry her. And I know it will cost you every relationship you have and I know it isn't what you signed up for, but I'm asking you to do it anyway. Will you trust me? And Jesus has the audacity and the right to say to you and to say to me, yes, I understand you've built a life for yourself. And yes, I understand you you value predictability and earthly security and and comfort and control, but I'm, I'm asking you to surrender control. I'm asking you to take a flying leap outside of your comfort zone and follow me. I'm asking you to trust me and obey me no matter what it costs you. I might might even ask you to get close to pain or absorb someone else's poverty onto yourself. Will you trust me? Some of the people I know who are the best at saying yes to Jesus are poor, homeless, and in recovery. And maybe the reason they have an easier time saying yes is because they have less power, control, and comfort to surrender. Maybe when Jesus comes threatening the status quo, it's those without privilege who so often are the first to rejoice because the status quo hasn't been working for them. And maybe the reason it's so difficult for some of us to trust Jesus is because we're already so invested in other things that we look to for security and meaning. Sometimes our lives don't turn out the way we hope. Sometimes the journey of following Jesus is itself a cause of fear and loss. Discipleship means allowing God to take us places we would prefer not to go. But God assures us that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The Apostle Paul wrote those words. If you're hurting this morning, my guess is the last thing that you want to hear is someone telling you that your troubles are light and momentary. Some of us are ensconced in darkness. I know that because you've shared your stories with me. Some of us are dealing with deep family brokenness. Fragile spirits and mental illness. Physical trials with no end in sight. Some of you have been dealing with these things for years or even decades. So to call what you're going through light and momentary sounds calloused, trivializing. 
But before you get too angry at Paul, there are some things that you should know about him. This is the same Paul who wrote, I have been in prison, been flogged severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Uh, Paul didn't call our troubles light and momentary while sipping a pina colada in a hot tub. He wrote them covered in bruises and scars. So how can Paul call our uh, pain and sorrows, our limits and losses, light and momentary? Well, they're only light and momentary in comparison to what's coming. Eternal glory. What's coming is so good and so enduring. By the time we get 10,000 years in, your worst decade on earth will feel like a vapor. Sometimes things don't turn out the way we wanted them to. And When you encounter a roadblock or when God's presence threatens your sense of control or his call on your life re- requires you to leave your comfort zone, it's tempting to quit. It's tempting to lash out in anger. But Joseph's story reminds us that God wants more for you than a comfortable, predictable life. There's a reason God didn't name his son God who stays out of your hair. God who doesn't rock your boat. God who is content to leave you alone. No. He names his son God with us and God who saves. See, God is invested in his creation and he's invested in you. He intervenes not to ruin us but to rescue us. Not to tinker with our lives, but to make them new. Not to frustrate us, but to teach us how to trust. So if we find that our dream is blocked, there's a pretty good chance that God has an even bigger dream in mind for your life. Something bigger than maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. Something bigger than preserving the illusion that we're in control. Something bigger than our little sandcastle kingdoms. Joseph was doing just fine before God intervened and made a huge mess of his life. But Joseph got a front row seat to act one of the greatest life the human race has ever seen. Joseph got caught up in a story that was bigger than him. He became part of God's greatest triumph. And just because things are difficult in your life right now, that does not mean that God has abandoned you or that God is messing with you. It could mean that God is about to explode in and through your life. That you're about to get caught up in a story that's bigger than you. And it might demand everything you have to give. And if it does, it will be worth it. 